When I was in those very fun, awkward years of being moved from a kid to a young adult, um, I desperately sought the path of least resistance. Uh, I didn't want to get made fun of. I didn't want to be the butt of jokes. I didn't want to get bullied. Um, I just wanted to get by and be okay with the people that were around me. Um, the way I tried to explain this to my kids that, is that being in junior high is just survival. That's all people are trying to do. I don't think most of the bullies are mean. I don't think they're hateful. I think they're just trying to survive. They're trying to put the target on someone else because if it's on someone else, it's not on them, and that's just easier. Um, and trying to figure out how to get by um, and get decent grades and not be a target for people, it just kind of makes you miserable. It's a hard thing to do. But I will say, I do think I was pretty successful at that. Um, I ended up being okay with junior high. I really enjoyed high school. Um, and the main thing I did, here was my tactic, I just tried to do everything that was cool. That was it. Just try to fit in. Um, I used whatever money I earned to buy clothes that were cool from the ridiculous and ugly Jinko jeans. Um, if you remember those, they were so big. I mean, there's, there's eight times the fabric a pair of jeans needs in a pair of Jinko jeans. Um, there's also... Um, those, uh, everything was like Tommy Hilfiger at that point in time. Everything was blue and red and white striped, um, or American Eagle, or Abercrombie. That was, my closet was filled with all of that stuff, because that's what everybody wore, and that was what was okay. I tried to talk like other people, uh, so much so that I had probably one of the dirtiest mouths of anyone in my friend group in high school. Um, and at the same time, I did all the stuff that people did. I went to the parties that people went to. I went to the same places, and I just tried to be where the cool people were and tried to fit in. And basically, that was my, that was my strategy, just Go with whatever was the least resistance, go with the flow. But then there were others who used different tactics. Um, one was to be different than everybody else. Like instead of going with the flow, I'm just going to be different than the flow. And I don't know what it was about the people that chose to go against the flow of kind of culture in high school, but they always, always seemed really angry about it. Um, I was enjoying my path of least resistance, but maybe that going different is hard and it makes one kind of grumpy. Uh, I lived in the era where we had the forerunner to the emo kids, the goth kids, you know, and so these were the kids that had the uh, studded uh, dog collars on and they had the same jeans I had, only they were all black. Uh, they had chains to the wallets, their fingernails were painted before that was something that everybody could do without being looked at funny. Um, and and they were just kind of angry at everybody else for the, how different they were. And every, they looked with disdain on those of us with our, you know, following the trends and all of that. Um, and, you know, at the time, I didn't understand that, again, survival. That's what they were doing. And I didn't realize that we were kind of on the same goal, just taking different paths to get there. It was only once I could kind of take a step back a few years and, and look back and realize what was going on. It wasn't until I was removed from that um, very pressured environment, because I think that's what school is. It's, it's not that it's different than the rest of life. It just feels more condensed, and there's a lot more intensity and pressure to, to go with that flow of culture that exists there. And so it was only later that once I got out of that that I could be like, oh, I can like different things and kind of be my own person and not dress that way and not watch those things and go that place and talk that way. I could do something very different. Um, but it is interesting the way we react when we are in a situation where we're the outsider. 
where we aren't the one who fits in the way things go. Um, I chose to change everything to fit in. Others chose um, to change everything to stand out. Uh, and unfortunately, um, I had no one to explain to me what was going on. I had no one who, had, who, 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 who really could tell me, hey, this is um, ridiculous. You don't have to be this way. My parents probably tried, but I was like, you're old and dumb. You don't know anything. Uh, you know, that's how, how it was. Um, now, strangely enough, we as Christians find ourselves in our current age as outsiders. And it's very weird for us um, because for a long, long, long time... Christianity was the driving force in culture. It was the foundation of what was believed and taught and the way people lived. And being an outsider in our culture is difficult. There's pressure to change and conform. And so we live in an era that no longer makes it naturally easy or comfortable for us to be followers of Jesus. And like a bunch of kids trying to survive in high school, we don't know exactly how to move forward. We don't know how to exactly how to handle ourselves as our culture has changed around us. Now, today we're going to begin this brand new teaching series called Living in Exile. And we're going to be looking at a time in history for the nation of Israel. So we're going Old Testament, and there was a time when Israel was conquered, defeated, and destroyed by a much larger and more powerful nation called Babylon. Uh, Babylon came in and just wiped everything out. They were so much bigger, so much stronger, and God allowed Israel to do this as a punishment for some of their uh, many, many uh, sins and atrocities that they had committed themselves. And so they came, Babylon comes in, starts flattening cities, um, killing people. They go into Jerusalem, which is like this prized crown jewel. It'd be like an army storming Washington, D.C. It was very shocking and surprising to them. Um, they walked into the temple of God, which they thought was this untouchable place. And they not only burned the temple down, but they also took all of the beautiful gold ornate furniture that was sacred and holy to the Israelites. And then uh, they started loading up the best and the brightest young people, and they took them back to Babylon to live as slaves. And so suddenly you have these people who had been raised their entire lives to be worshipers of Yahweh, which Yahweh, if you don't know, is the Old Testament name for God. And so they had lived in this culture to be worshipers of Yahweh from birth. And they had this law code that God had given them. And the Israelites lived by this law code, at least the faithful ones did. And it colored and shaped everything about their lives. Every mo moment of every day was shaped in such a way that they could not escape the fact that they were to be living as worshipers of Yahweh. Everything they ate, uh, the schooling they did, the way business was done, the way their families farmed and raised animals, uh, the way food was prepared, the calendar of holidays was set by the law of God. All this stuff, again, led and guided everyday life so that they couldn't escape. Their minds could never get out of the, the framework of, I live for God. I worship the one true God. And then all of a sudden, these guys who'd been raised in this moment, and women, they get swept away to a culture that is drastically different from their own, where people speak a different language and dress a certain way, dress a different way. And all of a sudden, they are fish out of water, and they have to learn to navigate this new life of living in exile in a culture, in a world they don't recognize all around them. They're surrounded by people who don't share their beliefs or, or, or see their lifestyle as normal. Everything about it was different. And so they had to learn how to survive. Now, strangely enough, we Christians, we find ourselves in the exact same situation. 
Only instead of us getting picked up and moved to a culture that we don't recognize, the culture shifted out from under us. I mean, some of you, you're old enough to remember when everything was closed on Sunday. How many of you still remember one thing? Yeah, you know why that was? Because that was the Christian standard day of worship. And our culture was driven and guided by Christian values and ethics. And it's not that way anymore. And so our culture shifted around us while we were standing still trying to follow Jesus. We stayed the same, stayed faithful, and everything kind of shifted out from under us until all of a sudden we start looking around and we're like, I don't know here. I don't recognize here anymore. This is different. This isn't what it used to be. And so 70 years ago, our culture was still driven by Christian values largely, determined how we did business, what kind of people were seen as heroes and which ones were villains, uh, what days off we had, what holidays we took. Um, It even guided how we spent money, how we spent time. What was determined and seen as right and wrong was still largely determined by Christian values. It was all agreed upon by this mainly New Testament Christian sense of morality. And then our culture started shifting. And the change happened before 70 years ago, but I think like 70 years ago was when everything went into like hyper speed um, in the 60s with the sexual revolution, and then our culture became uh, obsessed with all things sexual since then, and it's been the forefront of the cultural shift. Um, And so whereas we were once a nation that supported, or our country was a a place where the morality of Christians, the beliefs of Christians, the way of life of Christians was somewhat honored, now in many ways it's vilified. Now we live in a culture that really doesn't agree with much of anything that we tend to believe here in a lot of ways. Our views are not the guiding force of culture anymore. Some people see them as dangerous and harmful, which it's funny. You can tell this this cultural shift is surprising because sometimes when we hear something that, again, is a deeply held belief that we've held our entire lives and now our culture says that's evil and wrong, we're like, what? What? Like, it still kind of shocks us a little bit because we don't understand, like, how, what, that's when we start to realize, I don't think I recognize the world anymore. We're in a different place. We're not in Kansas anymore. Like, something is going on. Our culture doesn't share our views about sexuality, human life, how to raise kids, our calling to be servants to all. It's all different, and it's all changed. It's almost like, again, instead of us getting swept away to a new land and culture, our culture was swept away and replaced by one that we no longer recognize or understand. And that's why we hear people say all the time, Christians say all the time, what is is wrong with the world? What is happening out there? It's like everything's going to hell in a handbasket. I just don't know what's going on. Oh, it's awful out there. I don't recognize the world anymore. That's because this change has happened so fast, it's given us whiplash. And yes, usually it is the older generations that tend to notice this. Okay? And the younger generations go, oh, be quiet, you old bogey. Just, it's fine. It is the way it is. Everything's going to be okay, right? But here's the difference. Old people, older people, seasoned people have lived long enough to have the perspective to see how quickly and rapidly times have changed. Um, younger people, you are more just living in what you were born into. It just feels more normal because there hasn't been that much change from the time you were born to the time um, you are now. And so it's not that, you know, you, you're cooler than they are. It's just that they've experienced more change than you have. And so what ha- what, what's going on is we find ourselves as exiles. As Christians, we are exiles. We are in a world that we don't necessarily fit into anymore. And to follow Jesus, um, it doesn't put you in sync with our culture. It puts you at odds with it. It puts you out of sync with our culture. And even 
again, if you're younger and you don't quite see yourself at odds with culture, the more you try to follow Jesus and the more you grow in maturity and see what Jesus wants you to do and how he wants you to live, the more at odds with our culture you will become. And so Christians in the U.S., we're outsiders. We're exiles. And, and, and we're going to talk about how to handle that because um, what we tend to think is, we tend to think the problem is with the change in culture. We get, we get upset or we get angry. Or we, we, and you might think, that oh, no, he's just going to sit up here and, and rant and shake his fist and give an angry sermon about how out there is evil and we're all good. And if, they would, if the world would just get its act together, everything would be fine. Um, but that's, that's not necessarily the problem. The fact that we live in a culture that doesn't agree with us is not the problem. Countless Christians throughout history for 2,000 years have lived in parts of the world where the, the world around them didn't agree with them, where the world around them did not make it easy to follow their faith. This is nothing new. In fact, the Christians of the New Testament were in a world that is more like ours now, where, it's, where people believed all kinds of stuff and, and they had different ethics and all kinds of stuff. So this isn't anything new. So the fact that we find ourselves in a strange place isn't necessarily the problem. The problem is we have lived for so long in a world that made it easy to be a Christian that now that that has changed, we don't know what to do anymore. We've never been tried. American Christians, at least in our generations, have never truly been tried. We've never had to fight to stand up for our faith. We've never had to plant our feet in the ground and say, this is where I live, this is where I stand, I stand on Jesus, and I'm not letting anything shove me from this spot. We've really never had to do that. We've never had to sacrifice friends and relationships in order to follow Jesus. We've never had to go through that. And so now that we're facing this discomfort and this pushback, yeah, it's painful. Yeah, it's going to be difficult, but it's nothing new. And the problem, again, isn't that we find ourselves in a culture that doesn't really agree with us or recognize who we are. Uh, the problem is we have not really been very good at knowing how to live as exiles in a land that doesn't support us. And so as Christians, um, I've seen people take Two paths, the same two paths that I, I saw people taking in high school. Some conformed. There's a lot of more liberal elements of the church. And I struggle to even use the word liberal because of its association with uh, politics. But um, there's, there's, there are different groups of the church that have just changed their belief, taken these 2,000 years of Christian Orthodox teachings and just kind of softened off the rough edges to make being a Christian a little bit easier in our culture. Um, you don't hear as much about those people because, um, again, they're not making a fuss. They're going with the flow. Not a lot of problem there. The other way I've seen Christians respond is by being just super over-the-top angry at our culture for change. How dare sinners sin? How dare those people who don't follow Jesus act like people who don't follow Jesus? And we get so mad and so upset at all the things in our world um, that, that, are, that are changing around us. And what's become unfortunate is Christians have become kind of known. We're like a stereotype in our culture that we're angry, grumpy people. I mean, if you, if you ever watch a show and there's any sort of like Christian characters in there, they're almost always either an idiot or they're mad. Like those are really the only two things our culture thinks about us. We're either dumb, well, we're dumb or we're dumb and mad. Because that's usually what it is. And if we were you know, smarter, then we'd get over it. And so we have not been an embodiment of Christ's love in a world that needs to know him. If you look in, in um, the book of Acts, it says that you know, there were a lot of people who didn't agree with the Christians and weren't 
becoming Christians, but they looked at the Christians and they thought, they're all right. That's not where we are. People have looked at us and thought, boy, why don't they calm down? What is their problem? Instead of being a light in the darkness, Christians have been a bullhorn in a hospital. We aren't helping the sick people, but we are annoying them by telling them how, very loudly how sick they are. That's what we've become. And it's not easy to be in exile and, and to try holding on to your faith and to try to be a Christ follower when there's all this pressure pushing on you from all sides. It's not easy, and the change has happened quickly, and it's become scary for us. But, and, and because of all the anger and the fear, we, did, we haven't responded well. And so that's what we want to talk about over the next few weeks. How do we live as exiles? How do we conduct ourselves in a world that is foreign to us? And let me just say, apart from some grand, over-the-top revival sweeping the nation, it's going to keep going that way. And the difference between Christians and non-Christians is going to get wider and wider and wider. And the hostility that some feel towards Christians is going to get greater and greater and greater. And so we are here. And instead of being scared, let's talk about how we handle that. Because God didn't leave us empty-handed. He gave us some very good examples to follow in Scripture. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend uh, our time in two places during the series um, to look at these um, exiles and how they were instructed to act or how they just naturally knew how to conduct themselves in these situations. Um, One, today and next week, or today and the week after next, we're going to be in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. So if you want to get a Bible and go ahead and find there, go ahead. Um, there's a pew Bible, or if you brought your Bible, awesome. Um, it's going to be easier. We're going to read a, a little bit of a chunk here, so if you, it's easier to have something to follow along with sometimes. If you want to use the Bible app on your phone, go for it. Um, I'll be reading out of the ESV translation. Um, so we'll be in Daniel. That's the first place. And then um, in the weeks after that, we're going to be in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet who spoke before Babylon showed up. And he's like, the end is coming. And they were like, whatever. And, and sometimes the things he spoke, uh, there would be a break between the fulfillment. So God would give him a message to speak to people, and then there would be like a lull before God actually came through. And so people started accusing him of being a false prophet, but he was right every time. And he gave some great instructions. Before the exile even happened, he says, some of you are going to be exiled. Here is how you live. Here is how you behave when that day comes and you find yourself in a place you don't understand. So those are the two places we're going to be. Uh, Today we're going to start in Daniel chapter 1. And if you love weird Bible names and words and places, today is a passage for you. Uh, So Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, They should have had a class on this in Bible college. There wasn't, by the way. You just show up and it seems like you're the only one who doesn't know how to pronounce things. Uh, King Jehoiakim. By the way, I don't know these. I have an app on my computer. I can right-click on any word and hit pronounce. So I'm a cheater. Just know that. Don't feel like, he is so smart. He knows how to say all these words. No. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, so the king of, of Israel that was left, Nebuchadnezzar, which we could just call him Chad, that'd be a lot easier. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand. So this was God's doing. God allowed this to happen. And he he, he had said back in Deuteronomy that he would. So this shouldn't have been a surprise. Some of the vessels of the house of, with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar, which is another name for Babylon. 
to the house of his God. So he robbed the stuff out of the temple of God, of Yahweh, and he took them back to Babylon and put them in his temple to his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Uh, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the king, uh, his chief eunuch or servant, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility. So young people who'd had a kind of a nice leg up in life, they'd they had good training, good education, all that stuff. Bring the best people, youths without blemish, good-looking people of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans was another name for Babylonians. So he goes um, on this kind of a reap the rewards tour. He flattens Israel, and then he starts taking all the best stuff back. This was a common practice. Now, um, you know, they call it the spoils of war, right? Um, but it might sound weird, like, but they took people. That was a common ancient practice, because if you're going to conquer the world and run the world, you want the best people. So as they conquered, they just said, not only do you get the gold and all the fun, pretty stuff, but we're going to take the smartest people back, and then all the smartest people will be my people. So that was kind of the idea here. And so he takes those who were smart of royal birth, who were good-looking, fairly strong, and he takes them away. And the goal is going to be to strip them of their old culture, to strip them of their identity that they were raised in, and to give them, conform them to this new culture that they were going to live in. His goal was to take these young people and transform them from Israelites to Babylonians. Like, that's a big identity shift that's going on, and it's intentional. Then we go to verse 5. The king assigned them. This is part of his program of transformation. He assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate. So you're going to eat Babylonian food. And the wine that he drank, you're going to drink Babylonian wine. They were to be educated for three years, a three-year program of training. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Now, those were not the only people that were taken back to Babylon. These were just the four that are giving attention because they were the ones who resisted and wanted to remain faithful to God in the midst of this culture that was trying to change them. And the chief of the eunuchs, or servants, gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. It was actually Belshazzar, but in, the, in Hebrew, the S and the H don't naturally go together like they do for us. So we say Belteshazzar when it's Belshazzar. Um, Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. So the king tells them what they're going to eat, what they're going to study, what they're going to learn. They're going to learn a new language. They're going to learn a new history. They're going to learn a new religion. Everything about their lives is training to become Babylonians. This three-year program. And the final piece of the puzzle was to strip them of their identities and give them new names, to take away the names given to them by their parents and to give them brand new names and saying, no, that old life is dead. Your new life starts here. And what's really interesting is all of their names before in, in the Hebrew meaning were praises to God, and all the names that they get are praises to a Babylonian God. Again, wiping away. They wanted to crush that old identity and give them 
a new identity. Now, for some reason, when I ever always heard these stories, I pictured like Daniel as like, I don't know, grown, right? I pictured him like 20s, 30s, something like that, right? But they were, it says they were young. Um, we don't know exactly what the Babylonian culture was, but the Persian culture that came in and beat up Babylon later, they had a, a, a habit of taking 13 to 15-year-olds. That's the age they took because they found they could train them. They, hadn't, they were old enough to learn stuff, but they weren't too old to be set, set in their ways. And so it's fair to assume they were pro- these were probably like junior hires. Like imagine if... Th- these, these junior hires are faced with this immense pressure to change everything about who they are and what they are and what they believe, and yet they're the ones who are standing under the pressure to stick with God. Now, in exile, there will always be pressure to abandon your beliefs, to conform your beliefs, to soften your beliefs. Culture is a flowing river. It's always moving a certain direction, and you can just go with the flow and go and become whatever current, the current of culture takes you and wants you to be. It takes a lot of work, though, to swim upstream. It's a lot more difficult to swim upstream. Like I said, we've never had to swim before. Christianity was the, was the way of our world. Our grandparents, if they wanted to be a Christian, they just hopped in culture and let it sweep them along. But if we want to remain diligent followers of Jesus, there are certain areas of our life where we're going to have to swim and swim hard, and it's going to be difficult. And so as a devoted follower of Jesus, when we try to live as Jesus wants us to live, we're going to get at least confused stares from people. Like when you say, uh, no, I'm fasting and, pr- and spending my lunch hour in prayer today. Okay, weirdo. Like, what cult did you join? Like, that's going to, or people are going to be like, how dare you believe something like that? That's so hateful. So we're going to face a wide range. Sometimes it will just be the weird stares, but, but we are constantly going to be thought of as weird or crazy or even unintelligent for believing uh, something as outdated as Christianity. Um, and you will be subtly pushed through all kinds of avenues, movies, TV shows, news outlets. Everybody's got an agenda, everybody's got a perspective, and everybody's trying to push you one way, and very rarely is it towards Jesus. You will be pushed to accept behaviors and perspectives and beliefs that go against the very clear teachings of Scripture. And um, I think one of the best examples of this and the way it's changed over the last 70 years is premarital sex. Scripture's clear in the Old Testament and the New Testament that sex was designed between married couples. And yet, um, you know, I don't have time to explain all the reasoning for that, but it was ultimately for our intimacy and our joy. Um, but yet now, that's, that's old news. Premarital sex is normal. You know, why wouldn't you? You know, it seems harmful to wait. I, I've, I've, there's lots of things I've seen where it's harmful to wait until you're married. This idea that we wait is non-existent. And some people, like, even and the younger you are, the more weird it seems. But, and, but you don't have to be that young for this to have not been that out of the ordinary for you. But, but it's this thing where we're like, that's the normal. And then whoosh, we are so far on the other side of it that now, again, it's, it's a harmful behavior. And it used to be the normal standard way. That's just one example of the cultures changing around us. And that's what culture does, though. It pushes subtly, slowly to, for you to conform and to change what you believe. It's, we get pushed to ignore what Jesus taught. We get encouraged to think we know better than God. We get influenced to do what's fun instead of what's honoring God and what's good and right in his eyes. 
And God's going to call us to live one way, and our culture in many times will cause us to live another. And there's not always going to be a whole lot of overlap where what we think is good goes with what culture thinks is good. We're going to have to decide, okay, where is culture okay, and where do we need to take a stand? That's going to be a decision that we are going to have to make. And again, the best response is not to cross our arms and stomp our feet and stick our tongues out at the world. That hasn't typically worked for us well. And that's not really what I see in Scripture either. Um, so let's keep going. So they've, the king of Babylon has laid out this goal, this, transform, this plan of transformation. And it's a lot of change. It's a whole, I mean, this is like, here's a whole list of things that are going to change for you, Daniel, and the other guys whose names are harder to remember. Uh, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs or servants to allow him not to defile himself. Now, notice what Daniel didn't stop and pray. He didn't, maybe he did, but we, that's, not the, that's not the first part of our story. We don't get Daniel praying, God, get me out of here. God, take me back to what's familiar. God, get me back to what's easy. No, he looks at this long list of change they're throwing in his lap, and he decides where to take a stand. And it's with food. Now, that might seem weird to us because, I mean, you're getting good food. Like, this is, like whatever food there was out there, he's getting the best kind of food, right? And, and, but you're like, don't you want to stop with like the, the religious indoctrination, maybe some of the teaching or maybe the, the name change? Maybe you want to pitch a fit about that, Daniel. But no, he says, I'm taking my stand with the food. Because one of the most in-depth parts of Israel's law was the kosher laws of, the, of food preparation. What foods could be eaten, what foods couldn't. How food could, should be prepared and how it wasn't. And this is all, again, a part of keeping them in the mind that God is holy. And that he is, God wants us to be a people who are separate and holy. And so God gave them a set of laws about food, which some things are okay and some things are not, to keep that always in their mind. And Daniel says, God... In our law, the law I grew up with, I know what to eat and I know what not to eat, and I can't eat that, and I'm not going to eat that, because I'll do a lot of things, but I'm not going to break the law of my God. And he, what he does is he just kind of carefully looks at all this new culture, and he wisely chooses where to take his stand on what he feels is the most important in that moment. And in doing so, he gives us one of the biggest principles that we need as exiles living in a land that we don't understand. He gives us one of the biggest lessons of how to live as exiles, and it's this. Exiles must be discerning. We must be discerning. Um, and I'll tell you why. Because there's some Christians who, who want to kind of look out at our culture and say, everything's of the devil, can't read that book, can't go that place, can't talk that way, can't do that. And we want to say, everything's the devil. And, they want to, and we want to hide in our little hole away from the world. I don't think that's typically the way to go. I think it's hard to reach the world when you are removed from the world um, all the time. And again, it's, it's hard to reach people when you're always sticking your tongue out at them. And, and, but what Daniel does is he is discerning. Um, again, of all the th things, they gave him a whole list of changes that were coming into his life. And he chose one place to take a stand, the one that was particularly important to him. And so we cannot, okay, I don't think we need to stand and say everything's evil, everything that's not from the Bible is of the devil. I don't think that's the way it is. God made the world. It's corrupt, yes, but there is still goodness out there. 
Okay? Just because a rainbow doesn't happen in a church building doesn't mean you need to go, oh, that's an evil devil rainbow. Like, that's not how this stuff works. God's beauty can be found elsewhere. But likewise, we cannot just open our mouths and swallow anything that our culture feeds us. We cannot just ingest and conform. As I read at the beginning of the, of the service, Romans, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world. Be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And so we must weigh our culture and what it's telling us to do and say and be against the will of God as revealed in Scripture. We've got to look at culture and say, okay, what out there can be redeemed, and, but what out there needs to be rejected? And here Daniel draws the line at his diet. And, and again, he's living in this culture that there's not even a hint of God in it. And he chose the place to be smart and to, to make this uh, stand. And, and the one thing I do want to point out is when Daniel makes his stand, when he says, this is not what I'm going to do. I don't want to eat this food. Notice, he doesn't say, I'm not eating your evil devil food. I'm not going to defile myself with your nasty, rotten, sinful, whatever. He doesn't yell at it. He doesn't say, you vile sinners than that vile food. He doesn't insult anybody. No, he's not rude. He's not angry. He's not disrespectful. He is kind. He's tactful. Notice, he doesn't say, no thanks, king. He goes to the guy who's going to bring him the food and is like, hey, here's the deal. I don't, my conscience, I can't eat this food. Is there any way I can get something different? Okay, and then what happens in the story is the guy says, uh, if I feed you like other food that's not as good, you guys are going to get all weak and scrawny, and then the king's going to be mad at me. And so Daniel says, well, let me propose a test. What if you give us vegetables for 10 days, and then you come back and check on us and see how we're doing? And if it's going okay, then maybe we'll just keep this ball rolling. And so he's very smart. He's very tactful. He's not rude. He's not horrible. He finds a way to take a stand in a way that isn't you know, angrily shaking his fist at everyone around him. And he's a great example for how we can be both faithful to Jesus and still show the love and grace and kindness of Jesus, to show a way forward without insulting everybody who's not walking the same way you are. But if you are a Christian, let me just tell you, though, you are in exile. That's where we find ourselves. We are in a, a culture that does not agree with us, a culture that will not encourage us to follow Jesus in the way that we are supposed to. A culture that will at times push hard against the way you want to live as you try to be obedient. And if we're going to be a light in the darkness, we must be like Daniel and put God first and handle our culture wisely. We don't need to, conf uh, to conform to it, but we also don't need to be angry. We need to be wise. We need to be discerning. We need to be loving and tactful as we enter this crazy realm that we find ourselves in is unknown to us. And we need to decide, though, there are, where are we going to take a stand? Because there's going to be plenty of places where we do need to say, no, I can't do that. No, I'm sorry, I can't change, I can't alter, I can't modify my beliefs because I know the culture says it's wrong, I know everybody says it's wrong, but this is not what God has for me. And if you're a Christian, again, like it or not, you're living in exile. You're in Babylon now. The culture, the rug was pulled out from under you while you were standing on it, and the culture changed around us, and it's going to keep changing around us. That's just the truth that we find ourselves in. And so instead of being angry or sad or scared or all of these things, I think it's just time we learn how to live as exiles. Let's pray. Father, thank you for 
the instructions of, uh, of the book of Daniel. Thank you for the amazing example that Daniel is for us, of faithfulness in the face of, of, of a culture that's far more hostile to, to his faith than ours is to ours. Uh, and I pray, Father, that we would learn to be a discerning people. We would learn to look at our culture and find ways to share the gospel with people, to find those bits of common ground where we can say, hey, yeah, you know what? You guys have, the culture has it right here, and we can get on board with that. But also to be a light in the darkness by taking a stand on things that we cannot compromise on. And so, Father, as our culture is subtly pushing on us, give us, give us a discernment, an awareness to see where our culture is encouraging us to drift away from you and eyes to, to, to know when to take a stand and how to do it wisely. Father, help us to not be filled with uh, fear or anger, but to stand on in confidence of who you are and who you've called us to be and to stand in faith on, on your, um, your power, that to know that, yes, our world is changing, but, it, but that doesn't surprise you, not like it does us, that you have led your gospel through harsher territories than this for thousands of years, and now, Father, you're going to keep doing it, and you're going to keep doing it through us if we remain faithful. So help us to be your light in the darkness. Help us to be followers of Jesus and to know when to stay faithful and to know, or to know when to take a stand so that we can always remain faithful. It's in Jesus' beautiful name that we pray. Amen.